prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day, God. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come to you today and just study your word, God, to get into it. We want to hear from you, Lord. I pray that you would anoint this time with your spirit, that you would make your word alive to us, and that you would speak directly from the pages in our book, God, straight into our hearts, and may it transform us, help us, and strengthen us today, God. And so, Lord, be with us here now. We're ready, waiting, attentive, God, and just yearning, God. We're thirsting after you right now. And so we ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I saw this headline. Uh, it, it went like this. The headline said, Tempted by movie, boy puts tongue on frozen pole. Well, last December in Illinois, an 11-year-old boy couldn't resist, resist testing what he saw in the movie, The Christmas Story. So he put his tongue on an icy pole, and well, as you guessed it, it really did stick. While his tongue was stuck, he panicked and he tried to communicate that he wasn't joking anymore. And then his friend ran to get help, but in the meantime, the boy did manage to free himself. The article said he and his tongue are expecting to make a full recovery. Now, with this, my mind kind of went to, I, I got curious. Well, if that really happens, I mean, how do you free your tongue from that stuck to a frozen pole? Well, just in case you happen to try that out and you become immobilized here, I found these instructions. So you can take note when I did this search on the Internet. Number one, remain calm. Try to stay calm, it said, and avoid pulling away from the pole. Your, your tongue will literally rip off the frozen pole and cause damage and bleeding. You can imagine that. And then it said, try to flag someone down by waving your arms and yelling the best you can. So my picture was, eh, you know, and your arms uh, flailing around. Now, number two in this step, I thought this was interesting. Cup your hands around your mouth. Try this method first. Warm up the metal surface using your own breath. Pull gently while you try to melt the ice on the pole and see if you can loosen your tongue enough to remove it. Then it said, be careful to not touch your lips or your hands to the metal surface as they will collect moisture and also become stuck. Can you imagine your lips stuck on there too? Another uh, step they had was pour warm liquid onto the surface. If by some chance you have a warm cup of coffee, a tea, or hot chocolate with you, oh yeah, right here in my back pocket, yeah, use it to warm up the metal surface and melt the ice. Pour li the liquid onto the metal pole, pole where your tongue is stuck. And then it said, yes, you can use urine. Although not recommended, if you are alone and no help is possible, this could be your last resort. Oh man, I would never do that. Another step was called 911. That's definitely 911. That's definitely an option. You try and reach your cell phone. And the last step was number five: pull quick and fast. Consider this as an absolute last resort option if all other options have failed or aren't possible. It said, build up your courage and then just yank yourself away. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I was laughing at that. Yeah. Well, certainly standing there with your tongue stuck to a frozen pole will immobilize you and limit what you can do, right? But you know what? There's something else that can do that, and that's fear. 
That's hopelessness and fear. It can certainly mobilize you. But the hope we have in God can melt that fear and free us. And so today as we return to our study in the book of Hebrews, we find that the promise of God in Jesus Christ is the hope that melts the fear. And that's the title of our message this morning, the hope that melts the fear. Now we're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 13 through 20 as we continue on in our, our journey through this book. Now, the hope that melts the fear, it holds to three things. And this is what we're going to see. Number one in our outline is God's unbreakable promise. Number two, God's official pledge. And number three, God's eternal priest. So let's begin here. Number one, Hebrews chapter six. Number one in our outline is God's unbreakable promise. The hope that melts the fear. Number one, God's unbreakable promise. Hebrews chapter six. Look at verse 13 with me here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, verse 14, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. We'll stop right there. Now, we begin here with this word for in verse 14. And that connects us to verse 12, specifically to what the writer was saying in the second half, where he said, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the writer's going on here. Last time we left there, and verse 12 was our last verse. Now as we come to verse 13, the, the writer is saying, so if there's one person to imitate, the writer now points to Abraham, who was the one to keep going, keep growing. Remember in our last study a couple weeks ago, that was our title. If you missed it, you could grab the CD or catch it online. So the writer brings up what happened in the Old Testament with Abraham now, how he saw God keep his promises. Thomas Lee in his commentary wrote, Abraham is mentioned here to show the reliability of God's promises. If God's promises are, were reliable, then his followers can claim the hope which he promises. And so that, that's a little look into what we're going to be seeing and unfolding here in our passage. We will see and we will find the hope that melts the fear. Now, this passage is a little bit difficult, but if you can follow me, we'll unfold it and understand what God is saying to us. Okay, so the writer's like, let's look at Abraham now. Remember, verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham. Well, what was that promise? Well, he mentions it in verse 14. The promise is surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So the writer here actually is quoting Genesis 22, verse 17, where the Lord was promising Abraham that, that I will certainly bless you, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply, multiply your descendants. Now, you remember, it, God had given Abraham a promise, right? And it really started back in Genesis 12. He repeated again in Genesis 13. He repeated again in Genesis 15. And what he was saying, God promised to make a nation out of Abraham's descendants. Actually, Genesis 22:17 it says, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And then it goes on to say, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So we, we remember that, right? How God 
promised Abraham to make a nation out of him. So this is what the writer is talking about. But now there's something interesting here. In this quote of Genesis 22:17, before that, it was presented a little differently than how the Lord had presented it in Genesis 12, 13, and 15. So the writer mentions this in the second half of verse 13, right above verse 14. The writer shows him here that the promise came with the Lord saying he could swear. Look at verse 13. He could swear by no one greater so he swore by himself. Well, why did God present this promise in that way? Well, let's try and understand this. First of all, understand that this all came in Genesis 22. It all came after God had tested Abraham, had stopped Abraham from obediently offering up his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember that. Abraham then had passed the ultimate test to not withhold anything from God and to trust God and how he was going to fulfill the promise. So that's what was going on in Genesis 22 when this promise came up. And so secondly, before God reiterated the promise that he's been telling uh, Abraham here, back in Genesis 22 and verse 16, the verse before the promise, God basically said this, I will swear by my own name. Then he said, surely I will bless you and multiply you. See, God swore to keep the promise by the highest standard there is and by the greatest accountability there is, and that's himself, right? There's no one higher. There's no one higher in the Lord. So when he swore on something, he swore on his own name. Now, why did God present it like this? And this is what the writer is putting out here. Why, why was it like this? Well, in context of the story back in Genesis 22, after Abraham, after his show of unbreakable commitment to the Lord, then God confirmed his unbreakable commitment to the promise himself. So God basically underlined his promise by swearing on his own name. That's the idea there. Hopefully you can grasp this and understand this. Now, I know this seems so strange to us, right? I mean, to me, first read, I was like, man, this is weird. I don't, I don't get this, Lord. And as I studied, it, it's strange to us, right? I mean, when you hear someone say, hey, I swear to God, right? Or, or I swear on my mother's grave, right? What are they saying? Well, they're saying, well, I'm not lying in this case, right? This is different now. And, and we understand, you know, that we're not supposed to lie. And so when someone says that, it's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're really telling the truth this time. And that's how we kind of take it in today's society. I mean, we're even taught by Jesus to let our yes be yes and our no be no, right? In other words, you know, you mean what you say, right? Plus, Paul was, was telling us in Ephesians 4.25 to put off that old sinful flesh and put away lying. So we know that's not supposed to be a regular thing that we do. And so we should not have to qualify a promise, a statement by saying, well, I swear, you know, I swear I'm really telling the truth, right? So it seems so strange to see God saying, I swear by my own name. So what's going on here? Well, remember, this book is written to what? The Jewish Believers. That's the name Hebrews, right? So to the Jewish mind, though, 
When the writer writes that God swore by his own name and made this promise to Abraham, to the Jewish mind, this all makes sense. Because culturally back then, that's what they did to show their commitment to what they were promising. Remember when Jesus mentioned how the Pharisees, this is in Matthew 23, how they swear on the temple, or they swear on the altar in the temple, or, or, or they swear, swear by heaven. Even though the Pharisees were abusing that, culturally, that was the way that they would confirm their commitment to do what they say. They, that's how they would underline their promise, and that I really mean what I'm saying. Now, I'm going to hold myself to that. So, if you understand that, then this is what God is doing in this place. God didn't have to swear by his own name because we know God and we trust God. But when Abraham, when he made that commitment to totally uh, do whatever the Lord said, then God said, you know what? I'm going to swear by my own name and make an unbreakable commitment to you. And with that, Abraham, understanding that's a culture, Abraham could not have received any greater assurance than that. That's why this showed God's unbreakable promise. That's our heading here in our outline. So then the writer says in in verse 15 now, and so after... He had patiently endured. He obtained the promise. So Abraham believed God and then he patiently endured. The word there is long-suffering. So whatever challenges he faced, whatever doubts, whatever things came across to him, he kept going, he kept believing. He was long-suffering in in the promise God had given him. And so think about this this is the example the writer wants the jewish believers to follow as they remember as we've been studying as they face the opposition as they face the persecution as they face their fellow jews and maybe family members that were tempting them that were calling them to leave jesus and go back to the old traditions and the old uh, rituals of the jewish faith but like abraham as they endure the promise of god will come to pass for as with them the writer saying, so it is with us. He obtained the promise. So the idea here is Abraham held on and he did see God make good on his promise. Think about how Abraham patiently endured. What the writer saying here, these two words are long suffering. Think about how he did, right? He was 75 years old when the Lord first came to him with this promise. He was 100 years old when Isaac was finally born, his first son. I mean, that's like 25 years waiting for this promise. That's patience. That's patiently endured. He was about 120 years old when God stopped him from offering up Isaac and and passed that test. I think Abraham was willing to go all the way because he believed God's promise. I think he was willing to go all the way, offer up his son because he believed God would raise Isaac up from the dead because he was the one God was going to use. Now, to me, then, if you calculate things out, when Abraham died at age 70, 175, 175, I believe he saw the birth of his grandsons for Isaac had them when he was about 60 years of age. So I think Abraham was blessed to see the beginnings of a nation as promised 
by God. In all those years, and within the hundred years from when he was 75, when God gave him promise to seeing his grandsons there, well, he, was, he obtained that promise. But you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about how God did fulfill that promise and make a nation because the story doesn't end there. By the time Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, there were about two million people. And eventually they settled in the promised land uh, that God had promised Abraham. And God established a kingdom, a nation there for centuries. Then some rough time came. The nations split. There's a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Syrians. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. It's like, oh no, what's going on? But the Lord had the people return to their land, but they were not a nation. Even in uh, uh, Jesus' time, they weren't a nation. They were a people group. They were under Rome. And in 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed and all, when the Romans came in about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's, that, that was like it. The people were scattered. But we see in our lifetime today, because in May 1948, Israel became an official nation again and dwelt in the land. The story continues, you guys. Current numbers, they say, there's about 8.5 million Jews in Israel and another 6 million out in the rest of the world. So we're looking about 14.5 million Jews total. Now, I say all of this to ask you, do you think God kept his promise to Abraham? Yes, I would confidently and firmly say yes. And so we think about this promise we're looking here. Surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. Abraham obtained the promise. The people of Israel obtained that promise. So this is what the writer is saying. Just as Abraham did, keep the faith for God still keeps his promises. Just as Abraham did, keep the faith for God still keeps his promises. Uh, when I was young, I remember this commercial. Maybe some of you guys remember. It was a Lifesaver candy commercial where a father and their little daughter were watching the sunset. And he gives her a Lifesaver. That's a commercial. And the camera shows them as a silhouette against the setting sun. And the sun is setting. It's almost below the horizon. And as it slips down, the father says, Here goes the sun. Going, going, gone. And the sun just disappears. And you see the glow left over. Well, to which the little toddler tells her dad, Do it again, daddy. Do it again. Well, it's cute how the little ones believe their father has the power to control the setting sun. And that they can even do it again for them. But one day, they grow up and see their fathers are mere mortar, mortars, mortals, just like... <laughs> them but you know what i was thinking about this god is not like that he is the lord god almighty and so just as abraham did keep the faith for god still keeps his promise he can do it again and again that's what the writer's putting forth here the writer's saying hold on look at abraham believe in god just as he obtained the promise, so can 
you. Listen, has God given you a promise? Have you been reading the word in your devotions? And you know those moments, boom, the, the scripture just jumps out at you. And you see that, God, you're giving me a word for me specifically. Has it jumped out you like, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19? Or maybe, boom, it jumps out that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Or maybe you get this word, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you, Isaiah 26.3. Or maybe Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God will keep those promises. God will, the word he gives you, he will and he still keeps those promises. Listen, you're going to make it. No matter what you're facing, no matter the challenges, no matter what it looks like now, you're going to make it guaranteed. God knows the end of the parade. He knows how things are going to end up. He can see it. He knows how he will work things out. So believe what he says. Listen, God sees the end from the beginning. He's the Lord. He's eternal. He sees everything. He could see with Abraham. No, there's a nation going to come out. He could see the end from beginning. He sees your potential. He sees the finished product. He sees you. He, see, he sees how he will fulfill what he has planned for you in your life. Think about it this way. When Jesus, remember when Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock? Maybe some of the other disciples laughed like, Peter? What? The rock? He's so impulsive. He's unreliable. But Jesus could see the end from the beginning. Or even Abraham himself. His, his, his original name was Abram. But God changed it to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. I wonder if Sarah said, yeah, right. Us? We're too old for that. And then God even changed Abraham's wife from Sarai to Sarah, which means my princess, referring to from her will come later kings and rulers of a nation. God still keeps promises. He will do it again. Is someone laughing at you? Is someone being critical of you? You? Yeah, right? Has God given you a vision of what he wants to do with your life? Maybe you're sitting here and God has given you this vision, this thought, this, this I have a future for you. Maybe a call to ministry. Maybe a call to be a missionary. Maybe a call to teach or maybe a call to minister to the youth or to keiki. Well, I'll tell you, when time comes, God will move. So keep the faith, for God still keeps his promise. And that's the hope that melts the fear. Let's go to number two here, God's official pledge. God's official pledge. We see God's unbreakable promise, and now number two, God's official pledge. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, 
stability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. We'll stop there. Okay, the writer says, look, this is like no different than people who swear by something greater, what God is doing here. That is those who take an oath for confirmation, which speaks about someone who takes an oath like formally or officially promising to do something. It's like in the old, old days, right, where you put your hand on the Bible in court and promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth, right? Remember, that's, that's the old. That's what he's talking about here. And that will end anyone who might dispute that you would do it or not. There's no doubt. In other words, a former oath keeps them accountable and holds them to the promise that they are making. Thus God, he says here now, in verse 17, thus God did this. He took an oath. Why is that? Well, to show more abundantly, that is to emphasize even more his intent to do what he said he would do, to show the heirs of promise. Now, those are Christians who who put faith in the promise of the salvation in Jesus, to show believers that God, his immutability, that, that, that means unchanging, that God will not change his counsel, it says here. That means what is in his mind, what is planned. So he confirmed this by an oath. Now, listen to how the NLT translates this verse. And I think this will make it clear and sum it all up. They, they put it this way. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So what God promised Abraham, God also made a formal oath. This is God's official pledge. That's our heading. Now I want you to look at something here. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, the first book in the Bible. And we're going to look at this oath, which I believe he's referring, the writer's referring to when God formally made this agreement with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 7, beginning there. Genesis 15, verse 7. It says here, Genesis 15, 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now he's talking about everything, inheriting the land, and and the nation's going to take over the land, and so out of Abraham will will, uh, come a nation. Verse 9, so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and young pigeon. Verse 10, Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. He like took one bird and put it on one side, took one bird and put it on one side. Now, this may seem strange. What Cut these animals and then, and then lay them out in two halves and then another one, another one. So you have this row of half, half an animal, half an animal, and, and these two birds. And there's a little aisle in the middle. It may sound strange. But again, culturally, that was the ancient way of making agreements. What they would do, they would lay these animals out, cut them in two, put them out in a row, and then in between, the two parties will walk in between the split animals, and that's how they made 
the agreement. They would make a pledge to officially keep what they were promising to do. And the idea was if they didn't uh, keep their promise, the same thing will happen to the one who broke the pledge. So this was the formal, this was the official way of making oaths. Now skip down to Genesis 15, verse 17. Verse 17, it says, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. In verse 18, just the first part, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So here what we see in these two verses is the smoking oven or this pot uh, I pictured it on a, on a chain, uh, maybe. And the burning torch was representative of God walking between the animals. So here we see God was officially, formally making the pledge, this covenant with Abraham. Now, the interesting thing that, is that we don't see Abraham walking with God in between, uh, as the custom is. But you, this is what God was saying. God was saying, my pledge is not based on you, Abraham, fulfilling your part. It's all dependent on me alone. This promise is not based on Abraham's faithfulness, but the Lord is saying, it's based on my faithfulness. That's why if you, if you, you know, as when we study Genesis, if you've read Genesis, even though we know Abraham generally believed God, and in the New Testament it was told it was attributed to righteousness because of he believed God, he had his moments of failure, right? He wasn't perfect, right? But the promise still stands. Why? Because it's not based on Abraham. It's not based on his performance, but on God. So understand what the writer is putting forth here and the Jewish mind would see. This is God's official pledge. It was based on what he would do, not Abraham. This was his oath. All right, back to Hebrews 6 now. Hebrews 6, verse 18. The writer goes on and says, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. All right. It's by two immutable things, two unchangeable things, the writer says, that we can have strong consolation. What are those two things? Well, it's what he just talked about. God's unbreakable promise, our first heading, and our second heading, God's official pledge. So these are unchangeable things, and we can find consolation, comfort in that. Because, he says, it is impossible for God to lie. And isn't that right? God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect and sinless. So how could he lie? He cannot. So since God does not lie, and since he said he keeps his promises, and, and he's made this oath to that fact, then believers have a strong consolation or a great comfort and great assurance that God will do what he says. Now, let me bring this into the picture. Earlier, in context, right? Remember, uh, maybe it was month ago a couple studies ago earlier earlier he talked of those people who did not fully embrace jesus right they look like they are christians but they weren't they talk like that 
They went church, but they didn't really fully embrace Christ in a saving way, so they were not saved. But then the last time, he went on to encourage the believers who fully did, right, embrace Jesus to keep going in the faith. Don't, don't, fall, or don't fall in persecution, you know. Keep on going. If your family, friends are saying, no, Jesus isn't right, go back to our traditions. No, keep, keep on going. So encourage the believers to keep going, keep growing, right? Be who they are in Christ. Well, in context of this, as we come into talking about the promise that God is giving you, and that promise He keeps, that we have great comfort and assurance that God will do what He says He's going to do, and He's going to bring us all the way home to heaven, and He's going to uh, keep our salvation safe. So in context of all that, the writer is saying that believers have a security in their salvation for God will do what he says he will do. Jude 24, it says, Now to him was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That security in the salvation God has given us. Or I mentioned this the other day, Philippians 1, 6 being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will what? Complete it, right? Who does that? God completes it. He does that. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. So think about that. This official pledge God made with Abraham, right? It was all based on what God does. Well, that's the same thing as our salvation in Jesus Christ. His work on the cross paid for it all. And now we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's, it's not my work, right? It's not the failure of my work that keeps me out. But it's all of Jesus and what he's done. So if God says, you're going to make it, then guess what? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And that's why the writer adds, and now in verse 18 at the end, who have fled, believers who have fled for refuge, and that's a place of protection, safety, uh, speaking about this is Jesus. Believers run to Jesus for refuge, so to lay hold of the hope set before us. What is the hope? The hope is the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ, and it means that we will make it to heaven and be with God. So the idea is Jesus is our place of refuge for he has rescued us from sin. Our salvation is in Jesus. Now here's another Old Testament thought that, that the, the Jewish believers reading this would, would, would just connect to right away. In verse 18 where it says, fled for refuge, it reminded the Jewish believers of the cities of refuge that are talked about in Numbers 35. These cities provided protection for an, uh, from an avenger if someone accidentally killed a person. So they could run to the city, find safety, and, and, not, and until things are worked out and the truth is out, oh no, it was an accident, and then they were able to stay safe there. Well, the writer saying, believers have found in Christ a city of refuge that protects them from the punishment of sin. Why? Because... Believers believe in Christ and that Jesus died on the cross and that to atone for their sins and now there's forgiveness for them. So, God's official pledge 
is this, and this is our point. God will do what he says he will do. And that means your salvation is safe with Jesus. God will do what he says he will do. And that means your salvation is safe with Jesus. The well-known British preacher in the early 1900s, G. Campbell Morgan, was once visiting two elderly ladies in their home. And he opened the Bible, and they're reading the Bible. And uh, he came upon Matthew chapter 28, verse 29, where Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Now, ladies, the pastor said, isn't this a wonderful promise of the Lord? To which one of the ladies replied, Young man, that is not a promise. It is a fact. I love that. What these feisty old ladies said is true. When God says he will do something, he means it. He'll do it. God's promises are a fact. How do you take God's promises? Do you see it as, well, I hope God comes through. Or I hope he will do this. I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping that. I'll tell you, sometimes in my times of doubt, that's what I, I think. When my faith is weak, I, I think that, well, maybe not. But Lord, I, you know, I, I hope you do that. But God is speaking here through his word and saying that we should look at his promises as fact. That's why he made the official pledge. That's why he walked between the sacrificed animals. It's like he, he put his hand on the Bible. He was, he was underlining. He was saying this for sure. He was publicly like, no, I will do that. I'm making sure that you know that. God will do what he says he will do. And that means, you know what? Your salvation is safe with Jesus. Remember now, when we read in the Bible, when you come across the word hope, it's not that, that kind of hope we usually think about like, oh, I hope. I, I hope this so. I hope so. No, when you read hope in the Bible, it's like knowing it will happen. So know, know that in all your struggles, God is there to help you. In your battle to find victory over sin, God wants to give you that victory because he's going to bring you all the way home and present you faultless before him in glory. Just run to him and let him change you. I'll tell you, when you choose to Believe in. It's going to happen. Look at his word. Look at his promises as, a, as fact. It is fact, you guys, Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a fact, Romans 8, 28, that, that he, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. It is a fact when he promises he predestined uh, those to be conformed to the image of his son. It is a fact when God said, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is a fact when Paul wrote, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It is a fact, Romans eight thirty seven. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is a fact, you guys. Romans 8, 38, 39. When Paul wrote, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor 
things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is a fact, you guys. God's official pledge makes it a fact. Well, let's go to number three now, our last heading, last two verses here in Hebrews 6. God's eternal priest. God's eternal priest. We've seen God's unbreakable promise, God's official pledge, and the hope that melts fear holds on to God's eternal priest. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The writer says, This hope we have, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So with all that's been said, the writer says, This hope, that promise of salvation, the promise we will make it, the promise that God has secured your future, we have as an anchor of the soul. What a beautiful picture, right? Like the anchor that keeps the boat from drifting. You can picture that. This is our hope. And it is both, the writer says, sure, which means secure. It is steadfast, means it's trustworthy. This anchor will never fail you. Our hope in Jesus. You can hang your heart upon this anchor of your soul. You know, I was reading down in the Roman catacombs, which is uh, the ancient, like, underground burial uh, grounds. Uh, they, were, they would find many martyred Christians were buried there and placed there. You know what they found on the walls? Over 60 carvings of anchors. It was one of the first symbols of a Christian's faith in Jesus. Our hope in Jesus is the anchor that keeps us from drifting away from God, being pulled away with the currents of maybe even wrong emotions, uh, keeps us from, from the wind that may blow us, the wind of troubles and tribulation blowing us away in doubt. This hope in Jesus is what keeps us from crashing on the rocks of life. And it is this hope that brings us, look at verse, the rest of verse 19 now, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So as we come to these, this last verse today, the writer tells us that it is in this hope, it brings us into the presence behind the veil. Again, the Jewish mind would see the holiest of holies in the Jewish temple, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where that represents the presence of God. And remember, only the appointed high priest once a year could enter in. But now, because of Jesus, every believer can approach God without fear. This is that hope that melts the fear. For... The writer says, this is where the forerunner, that's Jesus, who went before us, paved the way into God's presence by his death on the cross. So now we have that direct access now. This is Jesus who has become our high priest forever, the writer says. Yes, he's saying our eternal high priest who never retires or dies. This is Jesus who is not like any other earthly high priest, but more like, and Jesus says here, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Remember, we touched on this, but remember, he's a unique Old Testament priest in Abraham's time. Now, what this does, this connects us back to Hebrews 5, where we saw Jesus is our high priest. 
but it also transitions us to Hebrews 7, our next chapter, where the writer will focus in on Melchizedek. So we're going to get into that more next week. Jesus did and does what no earthly priest could do. He, so he is God's eternal priest. And that's our heading. Hodges said in his commentary, The Lord Jesus, by his entrance into the heavenly sanctuary, where he functions as a high priest forever, has given to a Christian's hope an anchorage from which it cannot be shaken loose. Therefore, the reader's hope was sure. I like this. Will Christ ever fail us? No. Will Jesus' ministry ever end? No. It's forever. It's eternal. Because he is our eternal high priest. So our last point is this. Since he is our high priest, Jesus is our hope, the anchor of our soul. Since he is our high priest, Jesus is our hope, the anchor of our soul. There's an old hymn by D.B. Towner, and it's called My Anchor Holds. And I want to read to you uh, some verses here in the course. The first verse says, Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know, widely though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and secure that can evermore endure. The next verse says, Mighty tides about me sweep, perils lurk within the deep, angry clouds overshade the sky, and the tempest rises high. Still I stand the tempest shock, for my anchor grips the rock. The third verse says, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears a heavy strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide. And then the chorus says, And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest, then, O gale. Oh, my bark so small and frail, by his grace. I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. How beautiful is that? So hold on, old child of God. Hold on to the anchor of your soul. Jesus will never let you go. He will see you through all the way to the day you reach heaven. And so this is a hope that will save us. And hope, I'm not just saying any hope, but the hope in Jesus who will save you from anything you are facing. I want to close with this story. Many years ago, a Nashville newspaper reported how a woman named Hope Phillips rescued a man after he drove into the Wolf River Harbor. She said she saw the fear-filled man who couldn't swim on top of his car, or he couldn't swim, and then he was on top of his car, and she said his face was like, I'm so desperate, please help me. So Phillips ran into the water, swam toward the man, used a tree branch to pull him toward the bank. When they finally were on shore, he told her that he was a student of uh, the University of Tennessee, but he had been really discouraged, and he said some words in that way. But then he asked her, what's your name? And she said, Hope. He asked her again, like, what? What's your name? And she said, Hope. And then he repeated her name twice. Hope. Hope. 
And then she shared he had a big smile on his face. See, the man had been saved by hope. That's it, right? When we finally realize that God keeps his promises, that God will do what he says he'll do, that our life, our salvation is safe in Jesus, then this hope can lift us up in our discouragement. Then this truth can lift us up out of that emotional distress. Then Jesus himself will give us peace, peace that passes all understanding. Then Jesus becomes the hope that melts the fear. Let's pray. Lord God, we find in you is our hope, Lord. God, may we hold on to the anchor of our soul and look to you, God. Lord, may we see the promises that you have given as fact and and not as, well, maybe it's not going to work for me. But Lord, as you have spoken to us, Lord, you say to each one of us, wherever we are, that you will do what you say. And so, Lord, as we look to you, help us, God, in our emotions that can overwhelm us sometimes, in the fear, Lord, that can paralyze us and immobilize us, Lord. God, how we can get stuck, Lord, in in the stresses and the worries, God, yet you want to take them, Lord, and exchange them for peace. God, help us today, Lord, to have courage to believe and to stand on your promises and to know that whatever we go through, you will get us through. And whatever we face, Lord, that we will make it, and that one day we will be with you in heaven, Lord. That our salvation, Lord, everything that you're doing in our life, from from when we first gave our life to you, to all the way when we go home in in our glorified bodies, Lord, you have a plan and purpose in you. You're you're a hold of it, God. Nothing, Lord, can get past you. So, Lord, help us today to believe in that, God. To believe in that. To believe in you. And to hold on to hope, which is you, Jesus. Thank you for being our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.